Hi, you're listening to the Perform, Prevent, Recover podcast, where we aim to bring you the latest evidence and research to enable you to perform at your best, prevent injury and recover well. The Perform, Prevent, Recover podcast is brought to you by Southern Suburbs Physiotherapy Centre. I'm Anthony Lance, physiotherapist, co-founder of SSPC and your host for today. Thanks for tuning in to episode 11, where we're going to take a look at the massive industry that is footwear and shoes, not only just for the more serious athlete, but probably more importantly for that massive market that is just out there trying to get the right pair of shoes to be fit and active and avoid injury at the same time. This episode could easily go under either the performance or the prevention aspects of our podcast goals. But I'm going to place it under the prevention banner because traditionally when people have looked at footwear, they've really looked a little bit more at the side of wanting to prevent injury rather than expecting the shoe to help them perform better. But even that's changed recently and we'll touch on that as we go on on how a shoe can potentially improve performance when we talk about the Nike Vaporfly. So much has changed with footwear manufacturing and technology and interestingly many of the factors that we once thought were important in a shoe have since been proven to be irrelevant. So today we'll get to the bottom of what is important and what we should be looking for when we go out to buy a shoe to suit that activity that we want to do. But before getting into today's episode, if you're enjoying our podcast, please don't forget to hit the follow button on our home site and that will make sure you won't miss an episode. But for now, let's get stuck into episode 11. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Perform, Prevent, Recover podcast and we're going to aim to get to the bottom of the footwear market today and we've got a guest that is exceptionally qualified to speak to us about that. So uh, welcome Rick Osler. Oh, thanks very much. Good to be here. It's great to have you on board. Um, we'd better go through a little bit of your bio first. Um, so obviously your most important job was a podiatrist here at SSPC for about four years. Um but other than that, highlight in your life, um, you've been podiatrist and a director of, of sports pods um, out at Life Care Pran Sports Medicine Centre for 21 years, uh, podiatrist at St Kilda Footy Club for the last nine, founder and director of Active Feet um, Retail Store, which I'm sure we've all brought a runner from over the years. Um, so 13 years there and more recently into some foot and ankle trauma and surgical rep at Zimmer Biomet. Does that sum it up pretty well? Yeah, I think the uh, SSPC one, clearly a highlight on the CV, and that's got, that's got me to a lot of, uh, opened a lot of doors for me, let's say that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And and um, obviously the world's a little bit different now with, with your work. We're just talking about St Kilda and COVID and uh, life's changed a fraction. It has indeed, yeah. The criteria around seeing players is uh, certainly a lot different than what it was last year. Yeah, yeah, okay. And let's um, before we launch into it, let's. Um, you've obviously got a pretty extensive sporting background yourself in the triathlons. Um, do you want to just take us through a few of your career highlights? Yeah, I was a lot younger and didn't creak as much back yep. in the day. But um, yeah, I've, I've uh, done twelve Ironmans uh, in total over the journey and been over to Hawaii a couple of times and. Um, 
that was uh, pre-kids and kid one knocked out my swim training, kid yeah, two right. the bike and kid three the running. So okay. uh, these days it's um, just chipping away, trying to get maybe 10 to 12 hours a week of, of training just to keep in shape. Okay, and doing running, riding, swimming? Running and riding, yep. yeah. Can't okay. get to a pool now, they're all closed. No, 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 no that's true. And your best finish or you, you, what, what do you look back on uh, with most pride in, in the triathlon history of yours? Yeah, it's a good question. Um Probably one of my best performances was one of my slowest performances over in South Korea. It, okay. uh, it nudged early 40s most of the day and uh, a lot of the field didn't finish. It was uh, Chrissy Wellington, who Ironman world champion, one of the best female athletes ever. Uh, I was alongside her for a little while um, until she ran away into the distance. And um, yeah, I then saw her when it was dark by the time I got yeah, home. Right. So I had to dig a, dig a bit deep uh, that day, uh, but that was probably one of my better ones. And um uh, it's fair to say that my uh, my, my shoes certainly um, uh, got me to the line that day. Yeah, rightio. Okay, great. Well, let's get into it. And look, I think, um, you know, for most people out there, their running shoes are, are, are a really critical piece of their sporting equipment and, and probably, you know, as a tennis racket is to a tennis player and a, and a golf club is to a golfer, the, the runner to even your average recreational runner, um, they tend to invest a bit of time and knowledge and money into so so we'd better um uh try and teach them uh what they can look at when they're buying a shoe and i'm relying on you and you've got about an hour to do it rick yeah i reckon we can get that done okay excellent so if we look at the evolution of footwear over time like there's been so many changes and and so many things that we have thought were important and um, maybe still do but there's also been a lot of things that have been proven to not be as effective as as we thought they were and and shoe manufacturing and technology has put a lot of effort into a lot of these things so we need to try and work out what what still works and what's what doesn't but it has it been hard as a podiatrist to keep up with what seems to be the constant changing in this industry uh well it's not really i mean if you're invested in the in, in a field then you you keep up to date and and of course the advice i was dishing out 12 years ago is very different to what it was six years ago and yep. very different to today so like anything with physiotherapy or podiatry you you're um prescribing or or advising within the constraints of the science of the day and and you make the best choices available based on the evidence yep okay well if i think back to the the first shoe I can ever remember, it was a Dunlop Volley. Um, and it's a little bit scary to think back to that shoe now. But when I think of the first shoe that really hit me on the market and everyone wanted to get one, it was it was the KT26, which was a Dunlop shoe as well. Are you you old enough to remember that? Yeah, I had a couple of pairs of those. They yeah. sort of had a couple of blue shades on them and a bit yep. of grey. I yep. remember it well. Yep. So what was it, I was trying to think, what was it about that? That like, that was a craze on the market. Was that the first midsole thickness in a runner? I, I, I just can't uh, remember why they were a craze. No, it had a big lateral type flare on it, so it sort of poked out around the sides and it was marketed yep. as being the most stable uh, of the running shoes going around because there was that perception at the time that, uh, everything needed to be stabilised and it was yep. built like a plank, really, at yeah, the bottom yeah. of the feet. So, yeah, uh, absolutely. Yeah, it would have been terrific for business if, if I was a podiatrist <laughs> back in the day. Yeah, and if you go back, I suppose, now, you know, when we think of the either the KT26s and, and we look up to the... Uh, the vape, the vapor flies and the alpha flies. It's a bit like comparing a Datsun 200B to a Mercedes S-Class, isn't it? 
Yeah, the differences are significant, but um, I mean, some of the core things along the journey remain the same. I mean, we're still we've still got two feet and still got largely ten toes, and yep, um, and we run. But you know, the population has shifted a little bit, and what you define as a runner nowadays is a bit different. We're a lot more sedentary, and we're probably all carrying a little bit more weight than yep. than in the past. And incidental loads and activities are different. So. Um, yeah, the requirements from a shoe has a slightly different focus than what it had in the past. Okay, and so before we get into all the changes that have happened, can you take us through, and I know you've got a heap of shoes in front of you, but um, what are the main components of a shoe that uh, we look at these days? I think most of the conversations build around what's called the midsole, which yep. you know we, we largely refer to as the engine room of the shoe. Yep. Um, and the midsole is what's often touted and talked about. It's a point of difference for different brands. Uh, they'll all claim to have the best cushioning features or the best whatever features. Um, but largely, they all get packaged up into what's called that midsole, which is basically the foam section between the outsole yep. that you that is touching the ground and the upper. Sure. Um, and that midsole is responsible for all sorts of weird and wonderful things, if you believe to the, believe the marketers. Yeah, yeah. Um, but it also has a, a key role to play, um, and applying uh, some of those features to the person in front of you is 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 can be really important and and can be really difficult. Um, by the same token, it's often uh, touted as being much more important than it really is for, for the large majority. Yeah, okay. And research and development in the footwear industry has been massive for a long time, hasn't it? Like companies put tens, hundreds of millions of dollars into this stuff. Absolutely, they do. And and that's not all marketing and hype. So having been privy to some of the testing and the labs and the, and the regimes that uh, materials and things are put through... Um, the amount of money is enormous. Um, and if I was a developer, a footwear developer, the frustration really lies in that the, the millions and millions of dollars that are invested into this space essentially gets funneled down to someone on a sales floor who's yep. advising you on what shoe to get and they've just gone past learning how to pick their nose, much less yeah. prescribe a shoe. Yep. And it must be frustrating for some of these brands to see their millions of dollars of research really being refined down to a level at the sales floor uh, by someone who doesn't necessarily know a lot about shoes. Yep, okay. Well, by the end of this, you're going to tell us how to deal with that young sales rep and buy the right shoe. But look, if I think back, um, and correct me if I'm wrong, you know, trying to think back to the first thing that I remember being relevant in a shoe, it was the last and even back, you know, when we were talking last, I, I my impression was the last was the was the sole of the shoe, um, and we used to talk about a straight last, which was you know pretty flat, and a curved last, which had a, a, a cut out and then an in between. And but but the last really isn't the bottom sole of the shoe, is it? Can you take us through that and and where we're at with last and why we thought they were important? Well, we thought they were important because they would um, promote or, or constrain motion. Um, typically, a last is a model for which a shoe is built around. And companies invest a lot of money in a, in a last. So, uh, effectively, it looks like a um, you know a three quarters of a foot without toes, and, and it's the basis from which the shoes are built around. So it's um, almost a, like a plaster cast on which the shoe was built well kind of but a really expensive one yeah, yeah. Um, and so what happens is is a last will have a, a lifespan um, with with shoes uh, and it might be a particular model and when it reaches the end of that lifespan um, over so many hundreds of thousands of pairs it then 
potentially drops down to the lower price pointed shoe as they build a new one for a new range of shoes. Yep. So nowadays we don't talk much about last um, insofar as the biomechanics or the function of the foot is concerned. Yep. We more look at last uh, as in the shape of the foot and what shape shoe are we putting on what shape foot. Okay. Yep. And so is there, let, let's stick to the bottom of a shoe then. And again, I, you know, I remember um, once upon a time telling people to look at the bottom and to check the, the bottom out. Um, is there any reason for any person walking into a retail shop to look at the bottom of a shoe? Well, not particularly. <laughs> yeah, um, simple as that. <laughs> no, simple as that. I mean, you'll, uh, you know, I had a good meme that I had on my uh, social media for a while and it was a, a person in a lab coat with some glasses on and inspecting the bottom of the shoes and said, oh, I diagnose a distinct lack of activity in your lifestyle. Yeah, yeah, right. And that was about as much as you could draw from the yeah. bottom of someone's shoes, really. Uh, we used to look at those things for, for differences between left and right and a few of those things, but how the person's using that shoe will, will determine how that shoe wears on its outsole and it tells us two-fifths of not much yeah. with regards to biomechanics and function. Okay, all right, so we rule that one out. Um, and that leads us in, and, and you sort of touched on um, what's a pretty big topic um, of motion control, but if we can just bring it back to something as simple as pronation and supination. So again, we, we were under the impression that, that you know, foot, foot posture, I suppose, uh, played a significant role in both injury and also the shoe we should be selecting so can you take us through just a simple podiatry definition of supination and pronation and and how that fits in if you were assessing a let's just say a recreational athlete these days do you take much notice of whether they're supinated or pronated well yeah i mean definition is one thing and we could spend the next hour talking about that but that would uh that would uh, close eyelids pretty quickly yeah um, so look, look, it is it is important and it isn't. And and when I say it isn't, the the model for which uh, retail has been built on traditionally um, really started in the eighties, and that was that if your foot pronates or in particular over pronates, if it doesn't pronate, you've got some major problems. But over pronation, so that sort of rolling in motion where you'll see um, a real curvature at the back of the heel if you're walking behind someone as they roll in, the opposite to rolling an ankle, for example. Yeah. Uh, was so it flat feet is that, a, is that yeah a so it falls into that in sort of broad category yep. and, and you would have seen the old wet footprint tests yeah, yeah, that runners yeah. world had years yep. ago and you know all those sorts of things oh gee that foot rolls in or you got flat feet gee you need a lot of support and so there was a really neat model that retail uh, was able to prescribe shoes according to this model and then if you rolled in you know, plus three, then you're going to be in a heavy motion control shoe because that must be bad. Yep. Um, and if you didn't roll at all, well, you're going to go into a neutral shoe or if you supinate uh, or tend to have higher arches, you'll go into a particular model of shoes and then all grades in between. So you had this, um, you know, zero to 10, if you like, feet rolling in heavily flat at 10 and those feet that go the other way at zero yep. and you're going to be somewhere along that continuum. Um, now that model is neat. It makes sense and consumers get it. But it's wrong. Okay. Yep. But yet you'll still, well, look, I, I was going to say you could still go into a shop and, and have a, you know, your footprint uh, taken in some sort of fashion on a, on a foot plate type of thing. But you can still walk into a shop, some shops, and see your, your cushioning, your neutral and your um, stability sort of sections of the wall. So you're saying if... If we walk into a shop and they want to do a, a, a footprint analysis of it, 
of us or direct us to a, a, a neutral cushioning or stability section of their wall that we should walk out and go to the next shoe shop? Well, quite possibly. It's just that, and, and to be fair to the retailers, there's not a neat model that they can replace it with, so they stick with the incumbent. Um, and so how a wall is set up and then how it's presented from a salesperson to the consumer um, can be quite different. So I wouldn't pay too much attention to the wall. Um, but, but in short, um, without a neat model that you could train you know, your myriad of staff with different levels of experience and so on, yeah. um, it requires the person to assess, uh, look at fit, and fit we know is, is massive. If the fit's not right, doesn't matter how good the function is, it's a poor shoe. Yep. Um, so we need that salesperson, we need a depth of experience. How are you going to use that shoe? Do you run? How far do you run? Where do you run? Why do you run? Weight loss, fitness, racing, what is it? And that requires experience, and it's pretty tough to have that experience armed uh, with a with a, a young person in retail. Do you think that happens? Like I, I I've never walked into a shop and been asked any of those questions. Yeah, well, the the trick is you ask questions and listen, and the first you know five or ten minutes should be listening to what the consumer has, their experience, what they're wanting out of their shoe, what their past shoe is. So you basically it's like going to your GP. Your GP is going to ask you a series of questions. Yep collate the data and then make an informed choice for which um, uh, that, that that option will work for you, hopefully. Yep. And so really, if I suppose if, if, if I walk in and I'm not being asked those questions, then I should be ready to present that information and say, hey, here I am, here's what I do, here's the surface, here's the distance, here's my frequency and see what response I get from them. I think if you're not asked those questions, you run away and find another store. Yeah, yeah, okay. So if we stick on the on the pronation supination, we, again, we we looked at that in depth over a number of years, and we thought it was related to to injury potentially. Like, do you, with your podiatry hat on, do you pay much? At, if someone comes in and let's say they're extremely pronated or or flat or whatever you want to call it, do you do you pay much attention to that? Uh, well, the short answer is it depends. Yeah. <laughs> um, yep. So without, um, you know, without going into to too much detail, uh, really it's about the capacity or an assessment uh, for the capacity of that body to withstand load. And so we might see a foot that uh, what we, you know, might term traditionally is pronating normally and look pretty good, but they've got a problem with load. Um, they may not be strong enough. They may be carrying too much weight. They're asking their body to do too much. So irrespective of whether they are overpronated, don't prone enough, whatever. Um, we can have someone that is deficient strength-wise and we need to address that and no shoe's going to help us do that necessarily. Yeah. Um, and by the same token, we can have someone who's got the has pancake for feet, but if they have no issue with regards to strength and capturing um, or, or managing load, then that's not a thing that needs to be fixed. Yeah. Uh, traditionally, if it was flat feet, you couldn't join the military, they wouldn't let you in the police yeah, force because, yeah. oh, you're going to have problems. Well, that's so far from the truth. It's not funny, but that's the model that you know the footwear industry is being predicated upon. Yeah. Okay. So, does that has the term motion control then? Does it need to come out of our vocabulary? Do you think? And, and my part B to that question is: Can a shoe actually control motion? Well, I think you know the answer to the second question. Yeah. Um, but. Um, the term motion controls pretty much disappeared now. Yep. Yeah. Um, so you won't hear that anymore from the brands. Um, you're certainly not going to hear it anymore from 
uh, practitioners that are that are up to speed yep. with regards to the, the science of the day. Um, sure. So as soon as you hear motion control, um, that's a term that was it's been around for a long, long time. Yeah. Um, and shoes, in fact, were categorised as motion control, either heavy, mild, or you know moderate motion control. Yep. Um, in terms of whether shoes can control motion, shoes can certainly have a different uh, make a difference with regards to facilitating motion or not facilitating motion. But controlling motion as such, the short answer is no. If you look inside a shoe, you'll see it. It's as flat as anything inside the shoe. You've got a two-dimensional surface and yep. very much a three-dimensional foot. So to think that a shoe will provide more arch support as such, well, you know, as I point out to students, have a look inside that shoe and show me where the arch support yeah. is in there. And yeah. the sort of they're all at sea. Yeah. Yep. So, uh, but having said that, the shape and the geometry of the shoe can have a big influence on motion. Um, and mostly it's about facilitating motion. And what I mean by that is that we want the shoe to provide... Uh, the least resistance to going in the preferred pathway, which when we're running, most of it's forward. Forwards, yep. <laughs> um, and so we look for those features to not inhibit that uh, that forward motion. And, and that's where more recently a lot of shoes are really trying to facilitate that straight ahead direction or what we call sagittal plane motion with yep. with rockers and... and um, uh, carbon plates and all sorts of things. Yeah. Oh, well, don't don't steal my thunder. We're going to talk about those a bit later. But let me that that brings a question then. Um, uh, and uh, if we open up the the um, can of worms, it is orthotics, which we haven't really got time to talk about today. But if somebody uh, is wearing orthotics and finds orthotics really um, uh, useful, does that influence what shoe they're going to get? Again, we would have normally said try and get yourself maybe into more of a neutral shoe because your stability is in the orthotic or, do, I mean, does that play any role? Well, we've probably just figured out that uh, the stability side of things is not really a big part of yep. shoes. And so if we've got an orthotic doing a good job, we'll need a nice platform to sit underneath that to not undermine the job of the orthotic. Yep. Um, probably the biggest thing, though, with orthotics is, um, is fit. Um, and making sure you get the right fit. Um, if you look at the numbers, I met up with one of the brands this morning, early this morning, and 85% of their sales now are neutral shoes, neutral yeah, right. running shoes. Okay. And that's one of the major brands. Um, one of the other brands that I do a bit of work with as well, they're at about 70%. So yeah. seven to eight shoes out of 10 on a wall that will be purchased are what we call a neutral shoe. And yeah. if you look back in the past, those shoes were really designed for the high arch supinated sort yep. of feet. And how many of those are running around in the population? Not many. So what we've sort of got to is that the geometry or the shape of the shoe is largely what we're looking at. And with, with an orthotic, they'll be in that neutral shoe category, but you know, your Dunlop volleys were neutral back in the day too. Yeah, that yeah. doesn't make them a great shoe. Yeah, that's right. So would I be right in saying that up until recent times, uh, certainly when I think back, I would have thought seven or eight out of ten people would have been more towards the stability or motion control side because the majority of people will present with a degree of pronation. Yep, that's correct. Yep. Yeah, it's been yep. flipped on its head. Yep, okay, great. Um, all right, so pronation and supination is out and last are out. So let's talk about maximalism and minimalism, which um, I think does uh, sort of, when we talk about maximalism, we're talking about um, a lot of support in a shoe. Um, and did that come about, do you think because we did think that stability was important, that companies kept trying to outperform each other in terms of producing more stable and more stable and more stable and we ended up with this maximalist theory? I think maximalist 
largely came about for the need uh, for a customer to put on a shoe and go, wow, that feels amazing. Yeah. Uh, you've got a massive wad of, of foam underneath the foot um, that is instantly comfortable when you try it on in a store, usually on the concrete. And you go, wow, that feels amazing and you're probably going to buy it. Yep. Um, over the years, you know, performance shoes, essentially as shoes become more performance orientated, so you know, faster and, and racing type shoes, they got skinnier and skinnier and there was hardly any foam between your foot and the ground um, and they're bloody uncomfortable after running around for three hours yeah. and something like that. Um, and consumers like to put something on that's soft and instant feel and, and nowadays you can have your cake and eat it, but um, I'm sure we'll get to that in a minute. But... Um, yeah, Maximalist came about as as um, uh, you know heavy cushioning, heavy comfort, high shock absorption because that was deemed that oh, it's all about shock absorption and dissipation of load when you hit the ground, that sort of stuff. Um, and you know that was shown to have its issues as well. And, and what it boils down to is it's horses for courses, and there's no one size fits all. Yeah. Okay. And uh, along those lines, with uh, uh, sort of. A maximalist shoe, you know, we used to talk about medial posting and jaw densities and again, we're just saying that's all gone. You don't even need to look at that or ask that question. Uh, well, not necessarily. I think it's going to come back a little bit. Um, so when you when you go into a store, um, I had to give some advice to a retail group that doesn't have a high level of baseline training yep. um, in the last week. And it was, you know, how are we going to direct this person? Because we're not talking about feet rolling in and flat feet and do you need support and don't you need support? Shoes that have a dual density midsole for how they were traditionally marketed is largely dead. Yep. However, that model of shoe creation, what we see with fatigue over the over time, so with runners uh, running for multiple minutes and, and into the hours, is that some of those features in the shoes are actually... Uh, producing more comfort for some runners and so what we're what we're doing now is we're sort of going in the middle of the path if you like and we're drifting a little left or a little right based on comfort Um, and so what we do with retailers now or certainly with customers coming into retail without great levels of of training in the staff that are there is that we look at past shoe we look at uh, comfort and then we'll start with a mid-range shoe and you largely couldn't tell the difference whether it's posted, not posted, whatever. Yeah, okay. And in fact, retailers aren't even talking about posting necessarily. It's what, how does that feel underfoot? Yep. Do, do you actually watch them or is more just their comfort? You, you pick that shoe, they try it on, they report back on comfort. Like, do you actually do a gait analysis of people in that shoe? Well, I don't. I don't work in a retail environment anymore. But yep. you know, we certainly you? got out of that. Uh, I get people not necessarily from what I'm looking at because unless I've got magic vision and I can see through that outside of that shoe, I've got really no idea what the foot's doing inside yeah. that shoe. Um, but I'll always use a running. I think you should always have people running on a treadmill to at least get an insight into how that feels. Because I could stand up in fifty shoes and go, "Oh, they all feel great." Yeah. Uh, I'll have a run in them and I'll straight away I'll ditch about 30 of them. Yeah. Uh, well, that doesn't feel right. Well, my heel slips a bit in that. Yep. Or So, again, that's coming back to your comfort as the wearer, not the observer's observations. That's exactly right. And so um, what, you're, what you need to do as a consumer is you're finding those specialist running retail stores not for necessarily what they've prescribed shoes like in the past, but for making sure they dial in that fit really close to spot on from from the get-go so you've probably got two or three pairs of shoes they're going to sit in that comfort paradigm that works for you and then you can go from there 
Let's take a short break from learning all about footwear. Last episode, if you missed it, I was able to go behind the AFL football scenes with Melbourne Football Club National Recruiting Manager Jason Taylor. And he gave us some really interesting and insightful information about what recruiters look for in young footballers. So if you missed it, here's a little bit of what he said. Well, there's no doubt it's a challenging environment. Um, it's a good question. Um, you'd like to think that the environments and the coaches that would still provide that um, level of why why they play the game in the first place. Yep. Um, and I will say to add to that that I think the players that tend to really prosper at AFL level have a genuine love for the game. Um, right. It's deep within them. And so they tend to just thrive on the, um, you know, the, the hard work and the setbacks and they just seem to be able to find a way. They're organised. Um, and, and that's because they have a genuine love for what they do. Sure. And, and that's where it can be challenging for some some athletes, I think that um, they they tend to be have the talent or are blessed, but if they don't have a deep love of the game, um, they can be really challenged. If you want to catch up on episode 10 and all things AFL recruiting, just jump across to our Perform, Prevent, Recover website page and you'll be able to download episode 10. But for now, let's get back to Rick and footwear. So tell me now, um, I read a great book called Born to Run. Have you read that? Of course. Yeah. How did we get from maximalist to minimalist? And by minimalist, we're talking the, I think the Nike Freeze and the the what Five Fingers and Vibrams and all these things that were really more a, a, a sock than a shoe. How did we go from one extreme to another? Oh, well, we all love a good fad, don't we? Yeah, yeah. Um, and I guess the, um, you know, a couple of the, the the basis for some of this. And if anyone who's read um, Chris McDougall's Born to Run, it's it is a cracking read, um, and uh, some of those uh, theories, they, they pass the common sense test. You look at that and go, well, that, that yeah, makes yeah. sense. I yeah, can identify do. with that. Um, and if you're running in a big doughy shoe and you crash into the ground hard as ever, you're not necessarily aware. You don't have that feedback yep. um, because it's so soft and you're so remote from the ground. And if I ask someone to go for a run on the footpath bare feet, they'll run very differently. They'll, they'll absorb that load and run a bit differently because it hurts to crash into the yeah. ground. And so that all sort of makes sense. Um, but again, it's that one-size-fits-all approach and it just doesn't work for everyone. And again, the, the minimalist movement, which was, you know, it went bananas yeah, uh, it did. for a while there, didn't it? Absolutely. Um, did you see many problems um, clinically with people going into minimalist shoes? Because it's a pretty dramatic change. Well, we all want to get better yesterday. We want to have weight loss in the next week and we yep. all want to be running a marathon in no time. And and so naturally we're a bit impatient. And so the transition uh, from a load perspective was significant. Yeah. 
And if you think that you are largely sitting down 40 hours a week, you drive to work and you drive home from work and you, you run three or four times a week and you eat too many burgers and you think that you're going to throw away your shoes, put on minimalist shoes and run up on your toes yep. and not get injured, Got a that's, problem. that's optimistic at best and, yep. and, and stupid probably uh, at worst. Yeah, okay. And so it was terrific for business, yeah. uh, but that's not what we like to see yep. either. And see so mainly calf and Achilles, problems out of that? Metatarsal forefoot stress fractures was yep. enormous. Uh, yep. Calf Achilles problems, plantar fascial problems, so that you know that bottom of the heel pain stuff. So a lot of those sorts of things, and it's it's not because it was wrong, but people don't take the time to adapt. Get ready for it. And yeah. if you're not prepared to do the work, then you're going to suffer. Yep. Uh, I mean, look, I I don't know. Is is there still many of these shoes on the market, and is there any role for anyone to have a minimalist shoe? Well, the best minimalist shoes is, is, is what you're born with, which is two, yeah. fe- yep. two feet. So even with the footballers, we do a session in pre-season once a week where they got their shoes off and they're doing some barefoot stuff on the grass. Yeah, okay. I, I, as I st- in running? Yeah, as in running drills yep. and, and running exercises. And I still find it gobsmacking that someone's happy to spend 250 bucks on a minimalist shoe when they can just take them off and get out in the grass and go for a run. Yeah, yeah, right again. It's how you adapt to load. It's all in the application. Yep. Do you have to do a bit of explaining to the coaches and the and the footballers to um, get them out in their bare feet doing drills? No. 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 Full buy, and it's um, it's one of those things. Their loads are carefully managed, but unfortunately, but out in consumer land, um, you don't have all that advice and those people around you to to um, apply what you, what you're doing, and so the risk is higher. Yeah. Okay. And look, that's a that's a nice segue um, uh, into. Uh, stacks and drops and pitches because we sort of went from a, a, a shoe that traditionally had, um, uh, I suppose, a pitch, which you can explain a lot better than me, so so higher at the back and, and narrower at the front to these, these minimalist shoes which didn't have a pitch at all. So um, do you want to firstly explain, you know, stacks and drops and pitches and, and where that is in today's runner market? Yeah, well it's, um, I mean, the... The pitch or the drop, if you like, is the difference in the height from the heel down to the toes. So anyone having a listen now who's got some shoes on, whether they be work shoes or whatever, if you look at the side of them, you'll see the heel sits higher than the toes. And that that's the drop in millimetres from the heel down to the ball of the foot. Um, and there was a big push on. I mean, Ultra is a brand that has a zero drop and that's their platform. There's a, there was a push on to get the drop out of shoes yeah, okay. and try and get more elastic sort of recoil out of calves and Achilles and those sorts of things. And... Um, you know, we're born zero drop, and why do yep. we start sticking a stacked shoe on and uh, or a pitched shoe on and, and and think that's the right thing to do? But um, so the reality is that the pitch or the drop on a shoe um, varies. Of course, you know the size thirteen is different in a men's is different to a size nine in a women's. Yet it's marketed as the same drop. Yeah, right. So they're they're different. Um, but the sweet spot seems to be still having a little bit of drop from heel relative to toe, given our more than sedentary population or more sedentary population yeah. nowadays. Um, the stack really, um, again, in the past, the higher the stack, which is the thickness of the midsole or thickness of the yep. foam, um, that traditionally was higher in shoes that were heavier. Okay. And then as it got thinner, they become more race shoes. So they were lighter and faster, but then they weren't as comfortable. Yep. Um, so now... As I alluded to before, we can have our cake and eat it. The foams that we're using in shoes nowadays means that you're seeing these heavily stacked shoes. Yeah. So we're seeing, you know, shoes that are sort of 32 to 36 millimeters, so three and a half yeah. centimeters it's of massive, foam, isn't it? Um, and they weigh nothing. 
Yep. Um, whereas that's, you know, that hasn't existed before. So we're seeing super light and super cushion. The longevity varies from depending on the foams that they use. But, you know, obviously everyone's um, followed the Nike story in the last couple of years. And yeah. brands are rapidly scrambling to try and keep up. Yep. And so let's, you know, is there any role if somebody has a, let's say they've got a grumbly calf and Achilles problem and they can't get rid of it, is that um, worthy of saying to somebody, look, you should go into that retail shop and make sure you've got an, an, an 8 or a 10 or a 12 mil drop? Well, nearly every shoe has 8 to 12, so yep. you're probably arguing over the toss a little bit there, okay. so they'll nearly all fit into that category. As a practitioner, you know, we use wedges and various things if we deem that that's appropriate from time to time, but asking a retailer now what their drop is on a shoe, they'll, mm. they'll be... They wouldn't know. They'll be desperately looking for the yeah, iPad right. to look it up. And to be honest, and to be fair, uh, it varies from size to size anyway. Yep. So uh, they're mostly 8 to 12. Okay. Uh, some are higher. Um, but there's not many less than, than, than that. Yep, rightio. All right, let's move on to another, and you touched on it, which is the, the sort of rocker um, shoes that have come out. And I think um, Hocker's been, were they, were they the first ones to really get stuck into the rocker bottom type shoe? Yeah, well, certainly walking MBT were the first ones to really pioneer that sort of rocker sole. Yeah. Um, but they weren't a performance shoe or a running shoe necessarily. They they, they dabbled in it. Um, so yeah, Hoka were the first ones to really have a crack at that, and they they were those super sized clown shoe looking yep. things early days. The, big, the Bondi, which first came yeah. out. Yeah. Uh, so so thick, like you 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 wouldn't uh, pull it off the shelf thinking you were going to run it. And it seems like a lot of Ultra runners um, got stuck into the hockers. So, what what appealed with the ultra runners? Well, I mean, you start uh, with fatigue. You start slapping the ground a little bit more, and and you're gonna you're gonna get a bit more of that road shock if you like after yep. long periods of time. And that could be a shorter period of time for a heavier person or a more conditioned person that's running, you know, marathons and things. You you just get sore feet from pounding them for so long, um, and so. That satisfied the need for comfort over longer periods of time, um, but also they produced their shoes without a lot of weight. Yeah. Um, so a significant chunk of the shoes that Hoka made were were not as heavy as some of the traditional shoes that were sitting on the shelf. So you could, you know, as I said before, have your cake and eat it a little bit. Yeah, okay. And so on that, um, how important is weight in a shoe? Oh, it's absolutely number one. Um, yeah. And so my more so than comfort. No, well, okay, absolutely number two. <laughs> um, my uh, my throwaway line, which I certainly used back in the retail days, was you always use the least amount of shoe to do the required job. Now right. the required job for person A might be, uh, you know, a, a, an Asics Nimbus uh, or a Brooks Beast. Yep. You know, a heavy shoe that might be the least amount of shoe to do the job that we want them for that person. For someone else, it's a DS trainer or. Um, or, or a Brooks launch or something. Yep. So, yeah, the, it's again, it's not about we should all be running around in lightweight shoes because that's a problem. We should all be running around in the least amount of shoe though because there's quite an economy cost to sure. running around in a heavier shoe. Yep. Um, and so you don't opt for more shoe for no value. We try and keep the shoe as low a profile as possible. Yeah. Okay. And the midsole foam, or and I suppose in the in the Hoka, the the midsole is how how thick is it in the Hoka? Oh, monster. So yep. yeah, you're you're up at you know four centimeters potentially. Yeah. 
So, but the um, you know the that's not a huge drop. Uh, it has a rocker component at the front end, so it's going to facilitate. Imagine a rocking chair, if you like, and you yep. lean forward in your rocking chair. Well, you fall off the front of it, don't you? Yeah, so yeah. it's it's not a dissimilar concept in that um, the shoe is not providing any inhibition to moving forward in that direction. So, yep. um, it was a sought after feature for runners who get sore across the ball of their feet. Um, and Hoka, interestingly, if you look at the um, at the last quarter um, in two thousand twenty. Uh, well, one of the few brands that actually continued to have reasonable growth uh, when everyone else was going backwards. So they've done a, an amazing job and a lot of brands now have got shoes that compete well against them. Um, and there's a couple of them, if I'm allowed to mention brands. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, but if you look at, um, uh, you know, ASICs have produced a shoe called a Glide Ride, which is, okay. has been yep. a terrific shoe. It's you know, essentially they thought, what are Hoka doing here? That's a great concept. Yep, let's let's jump keep one on. of those. Um, with a different fit and profile they've got an evo run as well so there's a few shoes jumping into the space um i just got a looked at a new shoe that i went for a run early this morning in one of the new balance uh the next model that's coming out in their 1080 yep a really high toe spring on it um so they these sorts of shoes now are grabbing hold of that concept and trying to you know i hope we're onto something there and, and they've done it really well and now the other brands are starting to put models in to, to do similar things. Yep. So so why why should someone again if we go back to comfort, if someone's just going in with not much idea of what they they necessarily want in a runner, they go in and try a more traditional runner and then try the Hoka or or um, an equivalent. Um, is there a reason someone would go in and specifically ask or, or should specifically try a rocker bottom type shoe? Uh, not really. I think it comes down to getting good advice from your retailer. Uh, you'll, want, you'll come in and a retailer will probably ask you, you know, what are you looking for in a shoe? And that could be a, you know, that could be a distance related. You're, you're doing the run for the kids or you're training for the marathon or something. Um, but they'll look at, you know, what, do you, what have you enjoyed out of your last shoe? Yeah. Um, and preferably you've got that last shoe when you go into the retailer. Um, and they'll draw out, you know, high cushion features. Yeah, okay. Um, and it might be the case that uh, high cushion features we can we can look at that now without so much weight necessarily. The concept of a rocker in a Hoka type shoe or a glide ride is a really different feel, and a consumer trying that on without having an understanding as to what it's for uh, won't feel instantly comfortable yeah. in some of those shoes. Yeah. Um, and so a, a retailer would tend to draw on that type of shoe based on the questions that they should have asked you in the beginning, which is you value comfort, but you're also looking for a shoe for longer distances. Yep. Uh, you've had an issue with regards to pain across the ball of your foot, for example. Those sorts of features in a shoe can really help with those sorts of people. Um, we've got some of our older runners that have just no fat pads on the bottom of their feet, yeah, the ball yeah. of the foot and the heels and so on. Um, and so they'll prefer a comfort-based shoe. Um, but it needs to come with the rider that the mechanism is quite different. And, and as I say, if, if seven or eight shoes out of ten are neutral and, and really nicely cushioned, um, that's a lot of shoes on the wall that you yeah, potentially yeah. try on. So that feature would be called out based on the questions that they should have asked you. Yep. Okay. So if I look back and we look at um, we look at last and we've looked at pronation and supination and maximalism and minimalism and barefoot running and, and stacks and drops and pitches and... We sort of um, uh, worked out that it, it, it comes back uh, a lot of the times to, to comfort, but have I missed anything else along that, that uh, research and technology drive that, that companies are put into runners that we've dismissed? 
Oh, a little bit. Um, certainly the rigidity of a shoe at the front end is yep. something that's a big thing at the moment. And Adidas have just released a new shoe with their little um, rods, if you like, that go under each of the five metatarsal heads. And that's oh, going, okay. coming out relatively soon. Um, there's another a plate option that called the Meta Racer, which ASICs produced for the Tokyo Olympics, which obviously didn't happen this year. Yeah. Um, so there's a lot of these shoes now are producing, a lot of these companies now are producing shoes that have um, a rocket component to the front end, but no flex. So they, right. uh, with the understanding principle that one, it doesn't impede motion going forward, which is not a not a new concept, and two, uh, the perception, particularly on the back of Kipchoge and the uh, and the uh, the sub two, yeah, you know, the fabricated marathon, but nonetheless, bloody impressive performance, yeah. uh, sub two thing with Nike last year. Um, and so that project has, has sort of brought attention to, oh, okay, do I need a carbon plate in my shoes sure. uh, to help me with that propulsive load and those sorts of things? So yeah. they are the things, but um, when you dial it back to the consumer back in, in running land, the average person runs two to three times a week that buys a pair of shoes for running. Uh, they turn their shoes over on average every 14 months. The buy cycle is about 14 months. Yep. The life cycle is probably more closer to 10 months in okay. reality. Yep. Um, and so those sorts of performance shoes, whilst sexy and interesting, um, form a really, really tiny percentage of shoe sales. And the large majority of people are going to sit at the top of the bell curve, uh, which is a shoe that provides good to high levels of cushioning, good longevity and low weight. Yeah, okay. And does the, back on the plates, like we look at the at the stack and, and I think did Kipchoge's Alpha Fly was fifty something mils, I think. So Kipchoge had a bespoke shoe, so it's a little bit hard yeah. to um, dial in exactly what he was running in and, and, and us in, in shoe buying land and we all got a bit excited Different. and thought we wouldn't mind a pair of those. Yep. Um you know, that's a that's a, a shoe that was specifically built for him. Yep. Um, and even though it was marketed, um, you know, it's a Nike shoe and there's a, a version of that that we as consumers could buy for about 360 bucks. Yep, that's the Vaporfly. Which were yep. good for about 100k. Um, and that's it. <laughs> and that's about yep. it. Uh, but his was a bespoke shoe, so yep. um, it's it's like the uh, KFC herbs and spices. I don't think we yeah. know exactly what, yeah. <laughs> what was in there. So do those shoes, though, like the higher we've gone um, through that midsole, has that brought in the need to have these plates that you were talking about that are coming out soon like do you need to stiffen a shoe that's got such a big thick midsole does it create instability uh not really um i think the 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 trick with nike and what they've done so spectacularly well um is the composition of the foams that they're using through their midsole so it's not necessarily about cushioning um it's about the response from that cushioning so if I strapped a couple of pillows to the bottom of your feet and asked you to go for a run, you're going, well, that's nice and soft and cushioned, but you're certainly not going to run any faster than that. Yep. If I put a carbon plate in that um, and asked you to run, you're not going to run any faster. Well, you're a little bit, but you're still not going to run very fast in that. It's uh, The um, the mystery's kind of been uncovered more or less now, and that is the return rate of the foam. If you sit on a couch, it's going to decompress. You can see the shape of your backside for a few seconds yep. while it decompresses. So the return rate of the foam, if you apply pressure to that foam that foam needs to give you an almost instantaneous rebound or return and if it's too slow you sink into that shoe and create some instability and and loss of power yep Um, and if you get a really high return rate then it's going to aid your performance and so that's you know that's prompted the IAAF to come in and put limits on how thick you can put those stacks now which uh, 
amazingly just happened to be at the top level of the Nike shoe that they created. Yeah, yeah, right. And so, again, if we look at the average person going in, um, uh, are they going to feel that difference or do they need to look for a shoe that's got that? Because it used to be EVA foam, didn't it? But it's now changed into... Uh, different foam like what does the average person if they're looking for that rebound type of attribute in a shoe how do they go into a retail store and know what they're getting well the retailers should know what their midsole compounds are made of yep um, and so they're as I say desperately looking at features to catch up to Nike and make sure they get good return rates on their foam and if you ask each of their brands they say oh, our return rates amongst the highest on the market okay. um, so I wouldn't be necessarily looking at that as a consumer if you if you're going in, most of the shoes that are sitting around that sort of 180 to $250 mark, uh, they're higher end foams um, and some are doing it better than others. And I won't call out brands that aren't doing it so well that yep, still sell sure. a lot of shoes. Yeah. Um, but we know, you know, Nike's clearly um, ahead of the pack in terms of that high end performance. Um, but you've got to look at what shoe companies are making shoes for and where they earn their money. And the average runner is a heavy heel strike, low cadence, running at about five to six minutes per kilometre. And so that shoe needs to do the job for that runner and provide good return for that runner, good longevity for that runner and a good platform knowing that that runner is going to fatigue or deteriorate over the duration of their run. And that's where most of the shoes are engineered to try and capture that runner. Yeah, okay. Um, and let's, um, as we start to wind up, uh, we spoke a little bit about Kipchoge and you're sort of a little bit tongue-in-cheek um, said it was manufactured, which it was, but what, what was your thought with the performance overall and how much did the shoe affect that performance, that sub-two-hour marathon? Well, the evidence is pretty good with regards to the performance advantage that that shoe's uh, given. Yep. Um, most of the best times across all the major marathons around the world for the last two years have been set in that shoe. Yep. Is it about four uh, percent, as the general headlines would say? Well, last it, it does it moves a bit. I think the last time I saw it was about three percent, but okay. um, it depends on which scribe you read. Which is still significant, though, isn't it? Over it, a marathon. Well, it is. Um, but at the end of the day, um, you had this guy running around um, uh, in an hour fifty-nine over the forty-two kilometres, and he's still the world record holder. He's still one of the best athletes. Uh, you know him and Bikili probably the best marathon runners going around and that's up for debate and yep but um still the best athletes in the world still in an extraordinary amount of pain running a 159 and so the the mental performance the metronome type performance to put in something like that uh, I just found uh, extraordinary to watch and yes it was a bit um you know it was manufactured it's not a real race condition and and so on and so on yeah but what it does do is it throws the cat amongst the pigeons and makes all the other brands look at innovative strategies, um, getting their research hats on and trying to apply some of the things that actually produce this. And you know, we all win from, from innovation and, and companies yeah. having to evolve. And, that, and that, that's forced some, some companies to have to evolve. And I, I think that's a good thing. Yep. So do you think the shoe took away from the, the athlete performance a little bit? Well, well, I don't in the sense that he's the best athlete, best marathon or world world record holder. Um, and yeah, he did an hour 59. But if you put it into the context of him being the best runner going around and he ran a 159 and he had this shoe on, well, then, yeah, the shoe contributed. You know, you'd have to argue that the shoe contributed to that, yep. to hitting under that two-hour mark. Yeah. Um, but he still ran under the two-hour mark. Yeah, yeah. Um, he yeah. was still in pain. He still ran his best, right? He still ran as hard as he possibly could. And he still did that. Um, and so 
I don't look at it in terms of the purest uh, world marathon record times as an hour 59. Yep. Uh, but I do look at it as an unbelievable performance in its own right. Yeah, yeah, okay. Now, what I want to do um, is throw a couple of shoes at you and um, uh, by name, Literally. Uh, oh. by name, and I just want you to to say off the top of your head what comes to your mind in terms of feature or or who it might suit or what's good about them because there's a few shoes out there that are pretty common amongst runners. So. We'll see how we go. Love you a, up for it? Love a good few questions without notice. Thank you. This will be interesting. Yeah, excellent. Uh, Nike Pegasus. Classic. Great. Uh, Asics Kayano, which seems to have been the, the staple for a lot of people over many years. Every man shoe. Okay. Uh, Adidas Boost, anything like their Boost technology? Comfortable. Okay, good. You're not giving much away. Asics uh, Nimbus. Uh, so the ASICs make a Nimbus and a Nimbus Light. Um, and so um, if I was to give you a one word, again, the Nimbus to a consumer is like the Kayano to a consumer. It captures uh, a big chunk of runners who are running your five to six minute Ks. Yep. Okay. Mizuno Inspire? Uh, underrated. Okay. Hoka? Love them. Nike Vaporfly? Oh, I wish I could afford a few more pairs, <laughs> but uh, yeah, impressive. Yep. Um, and the ASICS Glide Ride you've sort of touched on. Yeah, love it. It uh, sits into the Hoka category uh, with a slightly better fit for my uh, bunny rubble foot. Yep. Okay, fantastic. Um, rightio, now to finish up, um, as I said, we've been through a lot and I sort of think you've you've said it comes back to comfort, but if you, if you could wrap it up and say to... To the listener, you know, when you go into the retail shop, this is what I want you to to do or ask for or to try. What would it be? The number one thing is to take in your old pair of shoes. Yep. And number two is to expect to be asked a few questions about what you're aiming to do with your next shoe purchase. Yep. Um, are you doing more? You're doing less? You're wearing to the gym? So just be uh, just outline what you're going to use that shoe for, so that that shoe is fit for purpose. Beyond that, um, it's the parameters around fit and if they're fussing over you getting the right fit they're looking at the volume how deep's your foot how long's your foot how wide it is um, then you know that they're going to dial in the fit pretty well and then from there um, you've they've done their job your job then is to try and assess the comfort between the shoes and if it's relatively close to what you've had um, in terms of structure then you can get two or three that sit into that zone and it's a matter of Choosing which is the most comfortable, or which is the cheapest, or which you like the colour of the best. Well, I was just going to say, what about the parameter we've all chosen on over time, colour? Well, no one wants an ugly shoe, do they? <laughs> and there's and the, 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 such an array of shoes, and we know that seven or eight out of ten are going to be neutral. And so, really, you're going to be able to dial into a have your cake and eat it, yep. if I use that term again, yep. uh, on your, on your colour as well. Rightio, Rick. Look, that's been fantastic. Appreciate you uh, joining us and um, lots of good information for us all out there. So um, thanks again for your time. And if people did want to look you up or, or see any of the Sports Pods podiatrists, um, where can they find them? Yeah, well, certainly Scott Murray is at Southern Suburbs here um, in East Bentley, and he's a terrific resource. He's been involved in sport at all levels um, professionally, so he's, he's an excellent resource. Um, and you're otherwise, it's pretty easy to track down the podiatrists that are heavily invested in the running space, uh, yep. and and those 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 are pretty pretty easy to find online. Um, but around Melbourne, uh, look out for your practitioners that are all things to all people, 
And yep. those people that invest themselves principally in the running side of things or the sports side of things um, were those ones to seek out because their experience matters. Yep, no worries. Thanks again for joining us, Rick. Oh, good to be here. Great questions. No. Thanks, Rick. Well, there you go. What a great opportunity to get inside the amazing mind of podiatrist Rick Osler. I hope that's made the intricacies of footwear and runners a little simpler. Um, And it seems amongst all that technology that has been there over the years, it comes down to comfort and fit and weight. So next time you go into a retail store, you can have some idea of what is going to be the best shoe to put on your foot. So I hope to see you next time when we continue the footwear theme and interview Rick's partner, Scott Murray, and talk all things injury related to footwear and how you should be trying to get your shoe to fit the purpose that you want it for. We'll see you next time.